welcome to episode 65 of Late Night Linux, recorded mostly on the 8th of June 2019. I'm Joe, and I'm alone, but just for the intro. So this is the Fostalk Live episode. It's now Monday night, Tuesday morning as I sit here, but this was mostly recorded on Saturday night at Fostalk Live. It's pretty much a normal episode, but before we get into that, I just want to say thank you to everyone who came, including Linux Lads, Ubuntu Podcast, and Dave, Marius, and Stuart, who did the mashup show. And also, I want to say a huge thanks to Entraware, to Linux Academy and Jupiter Broadcasting, who's my work, and also NerdZoom Media, who all sponsored the mashup show. And that money all went to a good cause, selected by the audience on the night, and that was Girls Who Code. There was some video recorded on the night. I'm not sure what's happening with that, when all that's going to be released so we'll have to wait and see. This is the first audio recording that will be released from it. I'll break in the middle for a brief admin section, but I suppose without further ado, let's have a listen to that then. Hello and welcome to Late Night Linux at Fostalk Live! Yay! Here comes your drink! Hooray! Yes, here's my drink uh, in incredibly bad timing. Uh, so I am Joe and with me are Will. Hello! And Graham. Hello. Hello. Yes, and I've got a drink, and so I might have to edit this out, but not of the video thing. Um, so, yeah, uh, we're going to do a, basically a normal episode um, with a bit of news and then a bit of a discussion. So let's start the news with something that Phelan put in. Oh, yeah, Phelan's not here because he's watching Metallica. So, yeah, it's imagine traveling all the way from Dublin to see us. Uh, yeah, there seem to be a few people in the audience who've done that, but not Phelan. <laughs> So he put in, there's a new KDE Apps website, which is something that Jonathan Riddle has posted about. Uh, Graham, you know about KDE. Are you impressed? I am. I think it's a, it's a good organization of things. I took a quick look at this because it's interesting, the fact that you never know which apps are KDE and which are not KDE. And what is KDE? What is the name for KDE? What do they call the apps that they put in KDE? Well, what do they consist of? Do they have to start with a K? Well, yeah, that's the general rule. If it doesn't start with a K, it's not a KDE app. So this is, it looks like an app store and it outlines all the things that are apps that go with KDE. I think that's a good thing. Absolutely. It's nice to see them advertising their ecosystem. It feels that Gnome have done a very good job historically of advertising their entire suite of applications, uh, and KDE perhaps haven't. And it's nice to see this out there in the forefront showing off their wares. I think it's good. Is it not just a bit too much of a gigantic list to actually be meaningful for anyone? Because I was scrolling for several seconds and it was just icon after icon after icon. I mean, it shows how much great KDE software is out there, but it didn't seem curated in any obvious way to me. It just seemed to be almost scattergun. It's like it's just pulling it all in and just displaying it all as one website. So this is something that I think Will could answer best. But I, just before Will speaks, I, I would say that why is it important that these are KDE apps? Why is it important that we should care that they're KDE apps? Do you have to use KDE for those KDE apps to be significant and important? And why is it a good in innovation that they now have a list of places where those apps are. Because I personally don't think that it's important that they're KDE apps. They should just be the best apps for the purpose that you use them. And this is what Will does for a living and has thought in great detail about. And I don't want to pass it over to you, but I think this is something you've probably thought deeply about. I think it's important to 
be aware and to talk about the the breadth of applications that exist in your ecosystem. It's very easy to think of KDE or GNOME as what you see on the desktop, but of course it's much deeper than that. And for a lot of people, they won't be aware of all of these suite of applications which are written and uh, and quality controlled by the people within the KDE project. So I think it's important to talk about them as part of the KDE project to explain the, the breadth of applications that exist for that platform. But should we should we care that um, a certain KDE application, for example, Carbon, is is a KDE app if it's the best kind of educational thing for for studying molecules in a in an atom? I think it, it depends on your point of view. You can look at KDE as uh, as I said the, the the desktop that you see on the desktop in front of you mm. on the screen, or you can think about KDE as the entire ecosystem. And I think that this is a step towards. KDE advertising their ecosystem more than their desktop shell. So I think it is important. Okay. I think people need to be aware that KDE is much more than just what you see on the screen. It's There are people working on all of these different applications that it's not just icons. So it's still and, important that there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a kind of a brotherhood or a sisterhood I think of so. applications. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's more than the Plasma desktop because still a lot of people refer to that as KDE. Mm. And they, they've been trying to get away from that for a long time. And this is one good step towards that, I suppose. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and additionally, it, it's using AppStream, which um, has come out of the free desktop organization. Um, AppStream is a, a metadata format that describes the application. It can provide screenshots. It can provide a whole load of metadata about these apps. And it's not just used by KDE Discover. It's used by GNOME Software. It's used by the Snap Store. It's used by uh, FlatHub. Uh, and you can, it, it, by editing a single file um, and providing this metadata, it's absorbed by all of these different storefronts. So it's, it's a good example of what happens when um, disparate desktop operating desktop uh, environments come together and standardize on a single metadata format unless you're using macOS and you click on install don't talk about them we could talk about thousand dollar stands all night if we want to but uh... look it's a really good stand okay <laughs> the stand what about the PC five thousand dollars up to eleven thousand uh, dollars it's not a PC it's a Mac it's very different I heard fifty thousand. If you uh, have the uh, the monitor, the stand, and the higher spec, because the lower spec comes with like two hundred and fifty six gigabyte SSD. Like, who? If you edit in eight eight K footage, that's just going to be full in a second. Tony, far enough. Honestly, that's it. You're fired. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, yes. Good stuff as usual from KDE. Phelim had put in a fuckload of other ones, but he can get fucked. He'd rather watch Metallica than come to see us. So uh, KDE uh, loving stops. To be there. fair, I mean Metallica are pretty good. No, they're a bunch of aging has-beens. Hey. <laughs> Hang on, isn't that what we all are? <laughs> <laughs> I'm younger than these two. Um, right. <laughs> so next up... Physically. So, <laughs> are you calling me fat? <laughs> because you'd be right. Uh, anyway, um, so the next one um, is... It, it, I suppose it's not really news. It's um, an article from Boing Boing about how... Because of Widevine, the, the DRM module that is proprietary... Um, 
Google still has control over Chromium because realistically, anyone who's going to use a Chromium-based browser, be that Chrome, be that Edge, be that Opera, they are going to need this Widevine proprietary blob in order to do anything useful with a browser. And by anything useful, I mean Netflix and Amazon and whatnot. Um, and so um, it's not exactly news, but I think Phelan put this in as a juxtaposition against what Mozilla have been doing. Now, I do like to shit on Mozilla every possible opportunity because they earn so much money and seem to spend it on just ridiculous shit. But a couple of things that they've been doing recently is um, introducing this blocking of fingerprinting. So like we think of tracking as cookies and stuff mostly and you know ip tracking but it's it's way beyond that at this point it's based on what extensions you've got installed and screen resolution and all sorts of stuff can can fingerprint you as a user and can track you around the web and um now well fairly recently just over a couple of weeks ago um firefox in, introduced a feature that at least attempts to stop that and also um uh, is is blocking trackers by default so there's like this real juxtaposition that he was trying to set up here between what google's doing and what mozilla's doing i mean it's not going to work i don't think unfortunately because you know you've chrome and chromium based browsers have just completely dominated the market but um at least we should be using firefox and i certainly am not on this phone here but on my desktop at least Sorry, what's your point? I, I, <laughs> ask Phelim. Ask Phelim to come so, out of the Metallica gig. I, I don't. I think it's impossible for us to not be tracked. I, I think you're saying that, and and it's great that Firefox is making this initiative. But for example, capture Google's capture. Yeah. You ever ever think about what you do? The delay that you 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 take can be fingerprinted. I think it's impossible. I don't know what's going on in the secret labs of the evil evil corporations of the world, but I'm sure they nailed fingerprinting five years ago. And everything that Mozilla may be doing is is is. I'm I'm trying not to be cynical about it, but I don't think we should necessarily care. We just have to accept that as using the web. And is what Mozilla doing a worthwhile effort? Or is it just publicity? Is it just pissing in the wind? Maybe, yeah. I don't think so. What do you think, Will? Well, uh, to backtrack a little bit, the the Boing Boing article that you're talking about there, I'd like to quote a passage from that article because I think that article is a little bit... um, FUD generating. So they say, prior to 2017, when W3C standards were free for anyone to implement, allowing free stroke open browser developers to create their own rivals to the big companies' offerings. Uh, But now, key W3C standard requires proprietary components to be functional. And that component is under Google's control, and the company will not authorize free open source developers to use that component. So the the thrust of the article that you mentioned there is that it's bad that the DRM exists and that you have to use a standard API to use it. I have a problem with that that statement from that article, which you you are not forced to use Widevine in order to do anything in, in your browser unless you want to watch uh, Netflix, for example. Yeah. Nobody's forced to use Netflix. So I think that that article is, is stirring up a bit of FUD there that says if you want to watch um, video in your, in your browser, then you're under the, the control of Google, which is not true. You can use YouTube, bad example, 
Uh, but without peer tube, maybe. Yeah, Pornhub. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> you can you can use plenty of websites without having to use uh, Pornhub has plenty of tracking. <laughs> so I, I think that DRM sucks absolutely, but blaming Google in this instance is not fair, and and so it rather undermines the rest of the article, in my opinion. On the Firefox front, I think that we should be celebrating what they're doing. I, yes, we can be cynical and say that they're not doing enough, but who is doing enough? Out of all the browser manufacturers, we've got two choices at this point. We've got Firefox and we've got uh, Chrome. I mean, you, you can use Chromium, but you know, it's still relatively under the control of Google. So I think we, we should celebrate and support what Firefox and what Mozilla are doing at this point. Um, if any free software company were to come along and try and uh, offer a free and open service along the lines of what Apple have announced with their sign-on with Apple, then it's Mozilla who could offer that. Google will never offer that because their business model is well, like yeah, they already do offer it, and it's just their proprietary bullshit. Right. So I, yeah, I, I think that um, that the Firefox and, and Mozilla offering the the privacy controls that they're building into the browser. They did their whole uh, Firefox, uh, sorry, Facebook container. Uh, built into the browser. I think that they actually need to take that one step further and containerize every single website that you visit such that um, the tracking information is not shared between anybody else. I, th I think they should find a way of letting us visualize that tracking information so that everybody knows exactly what's being shared in, in, a, in a small little icon that goes red yeah. or green. Yeah. Sort of shades of green. But I do agree maybe. with Will. I mean, this is this. It's almost like a straw man. There's two different sides to this argument, and they're not equivalent. Mozilla does great work. It's vitally important that Mozilla carries on doing it, and we should support them. And we're kind of criticizing. I'm criticizing them for a certain element of that, but in fact, they're the only people doing action. Action is really important, and everything that we talk about. This is serious, isn't it? I thought we'd be more lighthearted than this, <laughs> but yeah. But they, they, you know, they are doing action, which is good. Yeah. Does this apply to the Peterborough by-election at all? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't going to bring up Dominic Raab. <laughs> but how, how, how can that be constitutionally allowed? You cannot, you cannot postpone Parliament just for the sake of letting Brexit through. <laughs> yes, stop Brexit and all that. Um, all right, well, let's move on. Um, so this is one that you put in, Will, according to... Uh, Google Docs's uh, history thing, and that is that um, Gmail confidential mode is now going to be default for G Suite users. So this is going to be default for me at work when I mm. have to send an email. That sucks, given that it's horribly proprietary and bullshit. Yes, this is bullshit of the highest order, without question. Uh, some of the features of this are that you won't be able to forward your messages, you won't be able to copy the contents, you won't be able to forward it, you won't be able to download it, and that you can set an expiry date on your email. Um, the email that you send will then be accessible via a browser, possibly via uh, a code, which you are texted by the sender of the email so that you can read it. Um, it's pretty obvious that of all the problems that exist with that idea that... Um, in the same way that um, Snapchat was supposed to make pictures that uh, just deleted themselves off your phone, uh, and that failed in a massive way. This is going to fail in the same way. People will be able to take screenshots. They'll be able to copy the contents. If you can access it in a web browser, you can access the content, and you can do whatever you, ever you want with it. Now, I haven't done a great deal of research on this, but I did a bit of testing the other day, and um, I sent, I've sent. i got multiple Gmail accounts, as we probably all do, and so I sent 
from one to another some test messages and um i set the expiry to be a week or whatever and it just showed up in firefox as expired already then i checked on the app on my phone and sure enough i was able to see them and so um you know because in firefox you presumably could copy paste the um contents of it and do whatever you want uh, it, it's just locking down email which is the last bastion as far as i can see of open standards on the internet like e email is the one thing that you is, is totally federated and you know we, we're trying it with mastodon and, and you know diaspora and all that sort of stuff but email you can just set up a server i mean if it's running xm it's probably been pawned by now that's how you pronounce it that's how i say xm how do you say it pawned <laughs> <laughs> You two are fucking obsessed. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, like the idea is that anyone in theory, okay, you're probably going to get blacklisted because you're the wrong IP and whatever, but in theory, anyone can send an email to anyone else. And what Google is doing now is breaking that standard. They, they're putting a proprietary standard in place of that. And they took over email. Uh, just a quick show of hands here. Who here has not got a Gmail account? Maybe, I don't know, 15%. Uh, who here uses Gmail or G Suite as their primary email? 52%. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. So, I mean, what, what do we think about email being proprietorized, if that's a, a word? I honestly think you're coming at it from the wrong way. I think it's what it's doing is it's making i think this is what will was alluding to was that it's giving people the impression of security and privacy when they just simply don't have it for all of the reasons that somebody at the receiving end can do whatever they want with it and it's actually giving them the false sense of security and privacy when they simply don't have it it's important what you're saying about the proprietary nature of the encryption in it and that's a whole different set of problems that we might talk about later but the real problem i think is that people think that their emails are private and they're going to be shared only with the, the person that receives it and then they're deleted when they're simply not going to be. Okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL and you can get $50 credit with 30 days to use it. DigitalOcean offers VMs or droplets as they call them in data centers all over the world with really fast network and really fast SSDs. And you can choose from one of the distros that they offer like Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, and CentOS or FreeBSD or you can use your own custom image. And you can take those distros and build them up exactly how you want. Remember, you've got complete root access to these. Or you can go for one of their one-click apps, like LAMP and LEMP stacks and WordPress, Discourse, GitLab. And these droplets start from as little as $5 a month, and they scale all the way up to huge amounts of RAM and huge numbers of CPU cores, so you can deploy exactly how much you need for the application that you're using. If you need more storage, they've got block storage and object storage, which is really easy to attach to your droplet and just get going straight away. They have cloud firewalls, so you can block network traffic before it even gets to your VM, amazing backups, and a great Teams feature that allows multiple people to work on one droplet without having to share passwords. So go to do.co slash LNL, get your $50 credit, and get started. That's do.co slash LNL. Let's talk about the exciting uh, Google thing that is called Stadia, which is cloud gaming that streams to you. And um, it turns out that you need less bandwidth than I thought, really. Is it 35 megabit minimum 
Well, they've said 10 megabit minimum, but if you want reasonable graphics quality, then yeah, 35 megabit. Yeah. So this is a games platform by Google, is it? Yeah, which is running Linux on the back end, so that's our excuse for why we're talking about it. You don't even like games. No, I don't. But, you know, I'm, I'm down with the kids. I hear, the ki- <laughs> I hear they're into this gaming malarkey. I saw a kid playing with a Switch on the tube here, and I almost thought I might want one. Um, Have you considered a stick and a hoop? <laughs> Perhaps like a, a bat with a ball on an elastic thing. You bat it back and forth. So it's going to be available from November, um, but only if you're willing to buy in to the um, Founders Edition. So you have to buy their controller and you're going to be fairly limited. But then um, it's only going to be $10 a month, which is not that much, is it? I well, mean, plus the $130 up front, plus yeah. buying the games on top of that. Yeah, but how much is a console? If I were to go out and buy a PS, whatever. Yeah, this is a dongle. It's not even a console. Yeah, but the console is in the cloud, man. Console as a service. <laughs> I don't know. I know. I don't know enough about gaming to know what the value of this is. It doesn't seem massively expensive to me because if you're willing to wait until 2020, which scarily is like not even that far away, um, then you can just buy games or just pay the fairly low rental cost. And it it seems to me as an outsider quite competitive and and like if they can make the technology of it work smoothly and and make the latency low enough that it is going to compete i don't know i mean will you're a hardcore elite gamer i gave you the code from my (laughs) cpu what was that like shooting people game that i gave you um um i can't remember yeah it was one of those (laughs) like pretend to be in the army and kill people games um yeah you're our gaming correspondent (laughs) what what do you think about this is it good value or what well i was chatting with graham about about this earlier on and it turns out that i'm just an old fuddy-duddy and i don't understand what the kids like these days the the fundamental problem i have with this idea is that i i buy a game today and i like literally buy the game and in some years time it's just not supported anymore. So if I buy a PlayStation 3 or a PlayStation 4 in 10, 15 years' time, I still own that 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 game console and I can still play the games that are on it. Maybe the network infrastructure behind it's not there and I can't play multiplayer, but I can still get on and, and, and enjoy that game. My concern with this is that that won't exist anymore, that you'll always have to be paying more money for... They'll, they'll monetize sort of the... the, the legacy games and they'll they'll find ways to screw you out of every single penny that that they can um and i just yeah i just don't i don't like the idea of not owning that game it's just going to be everything's going to be streamed and they'll be in complete control of what exists and what doesn't so when will and i were talking about this the problem that i think we were talking about was that you said we're old fuddy-duddies but there's a generation of people who play games that don't realize that there was a time when you could actually own something. I have a big stack of Infocom games. You know, like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy came with a small little packet of of pocket fluff. Is that you next know, to your stack of synths? <laughs> it's about the same era, yeah. Actually, <laughs> mid-80s is a little bit late for synths, but it was amazing. It's, 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 it's a real thing, and it's, it's a craft, and it's an artwork, and that's what gaming is, and I think should be. And that's irrelevant. 
to this discussion in a way because we're talking about people who are used to apps on their phone and services and software as a service. They don't understand the difference. And, and for that reason, scarily, it might be successful. And there's nothing wrong with them trying to make this a service and try and push it through. What, the, what do we do as an action to say that it doesn't have to be this way? You can maybe buy a game and you can actually own the rights to play that game, even in 20 years' time when the infrastructure is broken. Right. We need an actual gaming correspondent. Dave, come here real quick. What do you think about Stadia? Are you going to buy into it or what? Um... It is like the most horrendous capitalist thing ever in that it is essentially Spotify for games such that it enforces the ideas that you, you games are now no longer a thing you own. They're a service you buy into. You never own the music you listen to. You never own the games you play with, which I guess is fine because I never you know go back and play a game from 10 years ago because there's always more content because that's capitalism but it it just reinforces the system that there will just you know now you pay money and if you just stop paying money you can't play the game and it's I, I can i can totally see it being a thing that will succeed if the technology works which i'm highly skeptical about but it makes me very sad work. that that happens, and I guess I'm a Luddite now. Yeah. So, in conclusion, uh, you'll be buying in day one as a founder? Bingo. <laughs> on to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It really does mean a lot. I know I say that every time, but I genuinely do mean it. It really does help keep the lights on. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember... On Patreon, if you support us for $5 or more, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact with us, latenightlinux.com slash contact. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CDN77. Go to cdn77.com. And they are a UK-based CDN provider with a standalone live streaming platform providing end-to-end video solutions. They sponsor loads of great projects like CentOS, KDE, Fedora, Gentoo, and Funtu. And one of their standout clients is the European Space Agency, who use CDN77 to deliver Hubble images all around the world. And this CDN is built from over 500 servers, all running Debian, and most of them are physical servers, only a few of them are VMs. And everything is developed in-house by CDN77. They make their own DDoS protection, and through the optimizations that they've done, they can push 80 gigabits per second of live streaming through just one machine. They've got 30 points of presence in North America, South America, Europe, Asia, and Australia, with daily peaks regularly exceeding 4 terabits per second. They're really big on innovation as well. They were the first CDN to implement features like HTTP2 and Broccoli compression. But most importantly, it's really easy to use. I hosted an episode of the JRS podcast on there, and it was really easy to put the file on there and link to it. And... I've had no complaints about the speed from people downloading it all over the world. They've recently launched some new monthly plans with the best value on the market from $9.99 per terabytes as a global flat rate. And they've also got a pay-as-you-go option with no commitments and full transparency. They've got a 14-day trial with no credit card needed, so go to cdn77.com and sign up there. And once you've done your free trial and you're ready to go for the paid option, then mention Late Night Linux to the sales or tech support team and you get an extra first payment bonus. So, for example, if you topped up $1,000, you'd get an extra 400 on top of that. 
So go to cdn77.com, sign up, and start delivering you content. Okay, so um, what I'm calling <laughs> fossatunities. <laughs> so we've had, as a community, many, many opportunities over the last sort of 10 or 15 years. Um, Vista was the first one. Vista was just a train wreck, and we failed as desktop Linux people to capitalize on that and then windows 8 came along and that was just fucking horrendous and again we failed to capitalize on that um the death of windows 7 is potentially maybe another opportunity for us maybe i mean windows 7 to windows 10 is not as painful but it is an opportunity and so the, the question is can we ever capitalize on one of these opportunities again um, and, and if we're going to do that, then we need to spot it very early. We need to prepare for it. How do we do that? How do we prepare for it? How do we get ready to pounce, pounce on it and, and share that vision that we all share of software freedom and getting away from proprietary bullshit, as I always say, or do we just sort of accept that the desktop is this tiny niche and, you know, we're doing all right there for what it is. And, the cloud is a sort of half success at this point. You know, there's a lot of free software going on, but, you know, the likes of Mongo and whatnot are not really benefiting from that, thanks to Amazon. So how do we, first of all, how do we spot the next opportunity that we're going to have? Because there's been plenty of them. I think the Windows 7 one is too late. That's what early next year. I think we've, we've missed that boat. So how do we spot the next one? Please don't say anything about... Um, Ubuntu Touch or uh, mobile, because well, or, or, or feel free to say that. How do we spot the next opportunity? I don't think we miss those opportunities. I don't think those opportunities are there. I don't think it, it would have happened. That's the way that open source works. It, it it actually scratches an itch that people go in there and solve a problem with. It, it's it's like taking it to the next level is worrying about the fact that people didn't capitalize on the fact that loads of people weren't dissatisfied. Loads of people were dissatisfied with Windows Seven. I think the 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 it, the, the opportunity wasn't there. Because people simply aren't prepared, aren't, don't necessarily understand that they're unprepared, and that's not even a bad thing. And so this is a little bit heuristic and a little bit weird because you can't actually put your finger on it, but I don't think there's a specific problem. I don't think what you're trying to say is not the consequence of Windows 10 being a bad upgrade. I think the problem is in general that people aren't aware of they have other options that work just as well, and Linux isn't as difficult as you think it is, and they can use it and subsist perfectly happily without Windows. If that's if that if Windows is a target, I don't actually believe it is. I think people using computers and and using technology for their advantage is a great thing, whatever the platform. I think uh, the the platform is effectively the web now, and so looking for opportunities outside of the web is probably not the right thing to do. And so privacy seems like the next logical market to go after. Um, Apple have already made moves there, so maybe they're one step ahead of us, but they've certainly made better moves about talking about it. Well, yeah, that that was going to be my next point, that like privacy seems to be the not even the next thing, the current thing, the current like major market opportunity. And Apple... 
I mean, I would imagine that most of us are aware that Apple are moving to a services-based revenue model now that the iPhone has started to massively slow down. And so you cannot run a services-based model that's based around proprietary software without collecting metrics. And so their whole thing about um, being like privacy as a service or whatever is clearly bullshit. But just because it's bullshit doesn't mean that the masses won't swallow it. And they are totally selling this idea. And they have, as far as I can see, cornered the market with that thing that they did this week, last week, whatever. This week, I think. Um, they like really push that all the time. Like when when they were talking about like their their new decibel meter on their Apple Watch, and like wow, it doesn't talk to the cloud at all. It's all completely on your wrist. Well, wow, that's really hard to have a fucking microphone that can work out how loud things are and not use the cloud. But like they were every little thing, they were always just throwing in those little sort of um almost snide remarks of like you know we're not like google we're we're totally all about privacy and i think people are falling for it is the bottom line and we've we've missed that boat that seems to be i remember stuart talking about it we haven't missed it haven't we no what are you doing can i send you a gnu pg encrypted email uh you could try (laughs) (laughs) well the the problem is it's difficult and nobody's taken it to really make simplify it because we just don't see it as a it's it's not something that creates its own kind of perpetual motion that solves the problem yeah the the, the problem is who's going to do the work mm. at this point um it's fine that we all gather together here and we talk about how important privacy is but who's going to do something about it we have to who who is we though is is we is our children learning is we like the whole community or is it one of the companies who are actually spending a shitload of money on this like the one that you two work for or maybe the bigger one over in america that's a bit red and whatnot i mean is it going to take a big company because it, it feels like those big companies are like really focused on developers because that seems to be where the money is because developers then use the cloud and you know it sort of perpetuates itself whereas just the your grandma using it on the desktop i know that will you would probably claim that you're focused on that but there's not really much money in that is there for anyone in what in desktop users generally well yeah i mean if you have a desktop user who is a developer and is then going to use your services in the cloud then there's there's clearly it's worth that investment but if it's just some person who's going to download the ISO and install it and use it and never give you any money, then that's all well and good. But from a corporate bottom line point of view, it's not worth really investing in that. Like if your corporate investment happens to benefit those other people, then that's brilliant. But you're not going to spend resources specifically for that. I, I don't think this is a distro level problem i think this is more of a political issue and it needs somebody above the various distros to take leadership on it and i mozilla are doing their bit but i think it needs an organization of a considerable size with a lot of money behind them to really push the the idea home uh, apple are doing a lot of good work as far as making people aware of the privacy issues that exist um, and, you know, since um, Cambridge Analytica and all that sort of thing, the general public are aware that, that privacy is an issue now, whereas perhaps before they weren't at all. So it needs um, 
it needs a concerted effort by more than just a, a single distro or a, a single project to to get behind it. I I don't know what the answer is. Also, I really don't think Apple's doing it to safeguard your privacy. I think Apple is doing it to safeguard its customers and its and its price, its shareholders' revenue to its to the revenue to its shareholders. I think they're purely doing it because it's something that keeps people in, enticed and in, in rightly. There's nothing wrong with this, but they're not doing it for the same kind of altruistic privacy reasons that maybe you you're thinking so it's not the solution we haven't failed in succeeding to do this the apple solution it's not the solution this isn't the solution you're looking for this isn't the solution you're looking for well it's funny i was talking to my wife about this when i um was going to sleep at eight o'clock in the morning having just thought of this topic and um she said to me uh, you know she bear in mind that she uses zubuntu on her laptop exclusively Ooh. I don't think you're allowed to woohoo for Zubuntu. <laughs> okay. Um, but she um, she doesn't give a shit about any of the politics of all of this. She would never listen to a podcast or watch a YouTube video. But I, I asked her about it and she said, well, the thing is that what you need to do is get the general public to understand the idea of software freedom because they just don't get that at the moment. And, you know, she's a bit of a socialist so, you know, she's German. It's a socialist <laughs> utopia there. Um, and, you know, we, we've got this, like, open source versus free software thing or whatever. But, like, you could you could sort of extend it to just understand the idea of open source. And whenever I've tried to explain that to my niece or, you know, other people who don't work in IT, I normally say normal people, but then I get shit for that. But um, just people who don't work in IT or aren't in our community like they just fucking glaze over man i've tried to find a way I've, I've tried 10 different ways to explain it to them that everything's made of code and you know you you either can see that code or not and examine it and change it and just surely we need to somehow associate the idea of open source or free software whatever with um, whatever it happens to be, privacy or whatever, whatever the next thing is, and, and try and espouse the benefits of an idea rather than an actual physical thing like Ubuntu or Fedora or, you know, GIMP or whatever it is. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And the, and the problem is that the general public don't care yeah. because when when the Cambridge Analytica stuff did kick off and there was a great big backlash against Facebook, everyone said, oh, I'm going to delete my Facebook account. Uh, account. And, and guess what? They didn't. Um, they still use it today. So even though enormous intrusions into their privacy have happened and it's been widely reported in the press, nobody cares. I have a practical suggestion for helping to improve the perception of free software among the general populace. And that is fire Richard Stallman and hire someone else. Get him out of here. But is he even relevant? Like, does, does How do we fire Richard Stallman? <laughs> yeah, but he's like so irrelevant that we don't even need to get rid of him. We just need someone who can be re replace him. Yeah. So we need someone who is as passionate as he is, but perhaps who is a bit more pragmatic. Pragmatic, has a bit more charisma. I don't know why you're tapping me on the shoulder. <laughs> I am the free software messiah. No. 
No, unfortunately, I'm far too lazy. He, I hate getting on planes, and that's a big part of it. So fuck that. If I have to, if I have to leave London, I'm not interested. So if we can do it all from this room, then I'll be happy. Although I did have to sit on the tube for like 35 minutes to get here today. Man of the people. I know. I was going to get an Uber, but it wouldn't work. We see adverts for Windows and Apple and stuff like that. Most people don't even fucking know that Linux exists. Like, there's plenty of people that I can talk to that will go, oh, yeah, well, what else am I going to use other than Windows? Like, Windows is shit, and they will readily acknowledge that. But then they go, well, what are the alternatives? Mac, well, that's even worse. And you go, oh, this Linux thing exists, and like, what's that? Yeah, Never so we must preach the gospel of free software. Yeah, yeah, but all I'm saying is I just feel like they've got a huge advantage because you say, well, uh, what are the things that we need to tell people? Well, that it exists for a start. Like, we can talk about privacy and we can talk about all of these different great things and say these are all of the benefits, but people have to know it exists to begin with to get even, like... Uh, to start discussing the benefits. Yeah, so how do we how do we make them realise that it exists? How do we get it in front of people? No idea. What we need to do is... No, what we need is installation parties and have someone dress up like the devil to tell them about the proprietary bits that they have to install. What we need is a bus. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent idea. Let's hire one. Who's up next then? All right. But uh, on the question of um, how do you get the word out and how do you, how do you um, inform people of Linux exists is local re- user groups, essentially. It's like have events and say, if you're new to Linux, have no idea what it is, then come along and ask us questions. Are you a Mac user? Are you a Windows user? Come along and say, there's this other thing called Linux, and if if you have any questions, come along, and we we will do a workshop. We will ask your, we'll answer your questions. So my answer to that is do local events in your local city. The problem is right. You say about missed opportunities, and but the issue is is that the companies that are capitalizing on these opportunities have like so much fucking money. It's unreal. So. That's kind of the end of the argument for me. Like, they have enough money to do this shit that, it, like, all other considerations are irrelevant, really. I mean, us as a community with barely two P's, two P to rub together, like, like that's that's pretty much the end of it for me. I think it's a, it, we're fighting a losing battle, like, from the start. Like, uh, Apple, Google, Amazon, etc. They can just throw money and developers at the shit and may, make a, a viable product in no time at all. How do we stand a chance, really, is, is, is my argument. We were talking about proprietary software and we're talking about people getting to use uh, Linux and free software, but most people here, and I'm not judging, put their hands up when they said they use Gmail. So if people like us continue to use those services... Do we need to be complete zealots and not use anything that's um, got any proprietary bits of software involved? Isn't that pissing in the wind, though? It, it might well be pissing in the wind, but I can't. Um, if you're selling people to use um, free and open source software and yourself are using proprietary software, doesn't your argument then fall down and not hold water? Or do you have to take a more pragmatic view? Yeah, do you have to be a zealot in order to sort of preach the good word and I would argue no I think you 
that part of it is you need to be pragmatic and say to them that you can run stuff like Chrome, Skype, whatever, Slack, if you're talking to you know whoever, that you can run these proprietary applications on top of desktop Linux. And you know that's always been the thing about transitioning people. You do it slowly. And I think that we've got to the point now where basically almost everything that um, non-creative professionals, let's say, use is available on Linux. I mean, there's very few tools, I think, I don't know, that um, and, unless you're editing video or, you know, using the Adobe products or whatever, there's, you can basically use Linux at this point. And, and so that's the first step. And then, hopefully, we then create some free software alternatives to them that are better and transition them over. I mean, that's a bit of a pipe dream, but it feels like we've got the desktop sorted at this point and we've got the applications. I mean, quite frankly... Thanks to Willslot and Popey and Wimpy and Snaps, like that has been a massive boon for proprietary bullshit on Linux. And you know that is it is a double-edged sword. But it, if I can say to someone, you can run Skype that is going to actually work. You can run a proper Slack that has desktop sharing and everything. Then it's a much more compelling thing. And um, you know, if if they were to somehow do some sort of deal with Microsoft at some point, maybe, and get some of the office stuff, then that would be amazing. Who who knows if that might happen at some point. But, um, you know, if they could do that, then I can't see anything else apart from, obviously, the big creative stuff. I mean, even with the gaming and stuff, we're, we're doing all right now. So it feels like we're in a good position, but just we're not getting the word out there somehow. I suppose with that, we'd better wrap it up. Thank you, everyone. Uh, we'll have to continue the conversation in the bar upstairs briefly. Uh, but yeah, we've been Late Night Linux at Fostalk Live! Yay.